Coming in October, an all-new 365-day prayer devotional from Sarah Young. Scripture-based daily prayers to bring you closer to Him. Free sample at JesusCalling.com. Jesus knew that if He wanted to communicate with His followers, the people who were, were interested in His ministry, He needed to tell them a story. And He told great stories. And you see that in the Gospels. And those stories have been passed down and passed down and passed down because that is the engine that engages so many people because in stories we see ourselves, we can see our own life unfolding in somebody else's story and vice versa. That's why I think storytelling is so powerful. Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. This week's guests have both overcome circumstances and obstacles that could have wiped them out completely, but in their darkest moments, they turned to God and stepped into a life transformed. Joining us this week is Editor-in-Chief of Guideposts Magazine, Edward Grinnan, and motivational speaker, Damon West. First up, Edward Grinnan grew up in a family bound together in faith, a faith they had to lean on heavily after the tragic loss of his special needs brother, Bobby. In trying to cope with his brother's death and navigating life as a young adult, Edward turned to alcohol as a source of comfort and found himself addicted, something he would battle for years to come. Just two weeks sober after a stint in rehab, Edward got a call from Guideposts magazine who offered him a much-needed job, and what he thought would be a temporary position ended up transforming his life and turning into an over-30-year career, which also found him becoming the editor-in-chief of the magazine. Well, good morning. I'm Edward Grinnan. I'm the editor-in-chief of Guidepost Magazine. I'm the vice president of strategic content development at Guideposts. So I was born in, in Philadelphia, actually um, a little tiny town on the outskirts of Philadelphia called Havertown. And then we moved out to Michigan. And that was a big deal for us because my family was a very much an Eastern family. Everybody was either in Philadelphia or Boston. I was the youngest child. I was born very late in my parents' life. I had two older brothers and an older sister. The next oldest brother had Down syndrome. So that was an interesting, I mean, to grow up in that environment where there is, you know, an intensive amount of caregiving for that particular child. You know, I think it opened my eyes to the kind of needs that people have for one another. This was a tragedy. That Down syndrome brother, Bobby, was three years my elder. One morning, I, in our, we were only out in Michigan for about a year, and he disappeared one morning. And it was, you know, he was a creature of routine. So it was really pretty alarming that they, they couldn't find him. I remember being pulled out of school and taken home that day. When I got home, there were TV vans and cameras all over the front yard. And it soon got reported out that this Down syndrome child was missing. There was a lot of speculation as to what happened to Bobby. You know, the, the days went by and the weeks went by and the police searched and searched and searched. It was assumed that he was kidnapped. And our family went through a, a terribly difficult time for four or five weeks. They eventually found my brother's body floating in a, in a neighborhood lake. A lake that searched repeatedly in the weeks during his disappearance. And they never were able to explain how his body got into that lake. And they were never really able to close the case. 
But of course, that had tremendous, tremendous influence on the family dynamics. It's hard to trust the world after that. But I'll tell you something that, you know, I came from a family of very, very strong faith. And when you lose a child, that tends to tear apart marriages. And looking back all these years later, I didn't really see it as a child, but you know, my parents stayed together. Their marriage was as strong as ever. And that's because they turned to their faith every single minute of that crisis and every single hour after that crisis. I was so much younger than my brother and sister and they all went off to college and the military. And as the youngest child, I was, you know, I had a lot of freedom. You know, how did that incipient alcoholism in my life take root? Because that's really where, you know, I was going to dominate my life for the next 20 years or so. Didn't know it at the time. I did have a, an alcoholic grandfather on my father's side. And when I was about 13, we were out in the woods with a bunch of kids and somebody had stolen a bottle of whiskey from somewhere. And, you know, we passed the bottle around. And so... I remember tipping that bottle to my lips, you know, and it was a full moon, and it was an autumn night, and it just something about the alcohol coursing through my blood and my brain made me feel like I'd never felt before. And I remember thinking, I want to feel this way all the time, all the time. And really, the next 20 years or so, that's what I tried to do. And of course, it it worked for a while. You know, I was able to be kind of a wild kid and sort of get in a certain amount of trouble. But I always made sure that I was in great shape academically. And the alcoholism, slowly but surely, you know, ate me alive. So that by the time I was out of graduate school, in my late 20s, early 30s, I was a, basically a homeless wreck. I was just living on the streets, on and off begging for money just so I could continue drinking. You know, there's lots of things happened in between. College, jobs, travel, vagabond travel, uh, graduate school. But at the end, life spit me out onto the streets. And that's where I was by my early 30s. In Denmark, in Copenhagen, I was actually about three years sober and about two and a half years sober. You know, I thought I could drink again. I forgot that I was an alcoholic and I started to drink and it went desperately, horribly off the rail. I, you know, I disappeared in Copenhagen. I was there working on a book for a, for a corporation that I was employed by. It was on the 23rd floor of a hotel and I sat on the windowsill, the one leg dangling over the precipice, the, the, the one leg still in the room with a glass of liquor my stomach and I said you know I'll probably pass out and if I fall out the window and die that's fine and if I fall inside get back into the hotel room then that's fine too I remember waking up in the bed with an incredible light shining through the window it was the middle of the night and it just it blinded me and I sat up and I thought I'm gonna be okay I'm going to be okay. So I ended up, I, I came back, I ended up back in New York. And I, my withdrawals from alcohol at that time were very, very serious. I was walking up Broadway and went into a convulsion. 
and ended up in a detox unit in Manhattan. And a few days later, I got out and I went to back to my apartment. At that point, I was living with a, another person who was in the same 12-step program I was in. We shared the same sponsor. And he pretty much said, you know, if you start drinking again, you're, you're, gonna, you're out, you're back on the streets. And I got a phone call from a recruiter who I'd never heard of, who had my resume. And I never sent her my resume. I didn't know who this person was. I didn't know it was a scam. And they said, well, you know, there's a, a magazine called Guideposts, and they're looking for an editor. Would you like to go in for an interview? And I'd never heard of Guideposts. And I thought, hmm, sounds like a travel magazine. Well, you know, I'll go in. Maybe I'll get some free trips out of this. Maybe this, you know, is the rewards of staying sober for a couple of weeks. So I went in. My sponsors in my in my 12-step program said I needed a job. I needed to take a job and commit to it for one year. It didn't matter really what the job was. Just commit to something and work on your sobriety and work on your relationship with God. And I said, all right, in my alcohol brain, I'll be out of here in six months and I'll find a job at the New York Times or I'll be at Condé Nast and you know, Vanity Fair. I'll get a job at Esquire. So that was, um, that was 1986, and I've been at Guidepost ever since. So Guidepost was founded 76 years ago by Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. He heard so many different stories from people about the challenges they faced in life and how they overcame these challenges and how they used their faith and what was the, the positive thinking you know, to help them face life and find joy and fulfillment and satisfaction and a strong faith foundation to their day-to-day lives. And he thought, okay, there's got to be a way to have these people tell their stories of faith in action. He created this little digest-sized magazine and started publishing stories by everyday people, which was groundbreaking. This was in 1945, right after the World War II ended. And Peel really wanted to be part of the national conversation. It was a period of tremendous transformation in America and around the world. And that's what Guidepost is to this day. These are personal stories of hope and inspiration from mostly from everyday people. We have about 4 million, 4.5 million readers per issue of the magazine. Our readers tell us that what makes them come back to the magazine issue after issue, year after year, decade after decade, is the fact that they identify with the narrators. They identify with the problems that people suffer with. There's this point of identification where the reader says, that person is like me. I understand how that person feels. I understand what they're going through, and I feel with them as they triumph in their struggles using their faith to overcome. God had brought me to the place where I, I needed to be. I didn't realize that for a while. That's okay. You know, I'm just kind of thick, so I didn't quite catch on to, to the plan, you know? In fact, what, what gets me coming in every morning are these incredible stories in, the, in this incredible audience that is tremendously dedicated the magazine and who really need these stories to grow and flourish in their spiritual well-being. And then I realized on another level that my own faith, which was so shaky at the time, was so slippery, like I was trying to hang on to something that was slipping out of my hands all the time. I began to feel that my own spiritual anchor was being strengthened by these stories and, and this audience. And I suddenly realized as I was going through a story with a narrator, that my own faith was being strengthened. And eventually, I realized that the bargain that God was offering me was, I brought you to guideposts 
and I want you here. In exchange, I will help you with your sobriety and you will help me with guideposts. And that was the bargain I struck in 1986 or so, and uh, it's the bargain I'm keeping to even today. I remember I was in a rehab for alcohol, and uh, a neighbor who was in recovery came to visit me, and he saw my shoes on the floor. And, you know, he was very sweet and nice man, but he checked my shoes under the bed. You know, and I, I was kind of surprised at the gesture, you know. And he says, you know, now you have to get down on your knees and get your shoes. While you're there, you should say a prayer. Just try it. And it was so, I go, all right. You know, if it's that important, pretend, you know, act as if you have faith. Pray even if you don't believe that you're praying to anybody. Just do it. You know, say a prayer every day. My sponsors in AA said, you should have prayer time every day, whether you think it does any good or not. And... Prayer, for me, was something I had to practice. I had to get good at it. I had to believe in it. And it was a part of my spiritual evolution as I began to believe that, that God cared about me. He cared about my life. The more I believed I could reach God through prayer. And so now, you know, go forward 30 years or so, and, and prayer is a part of my life. I try to pray in the most conversational way, in the most mundane places. You know, I, I don't feel like my prayers are they're just part of the routine. But when, you know, I'm driving down the road and, you know, you're in a traffic jam, suddenly prayer seems very real to me. It's like, yeah, this is, this is a time where I can connect. Jesus Calling, February 18th. I am with you. These four words are like a safety net, protecting you from falling into despair. Because you are human. You will always have ups and downs in your life experience. But the promise of my presence limits how far down you can go. Sometimes you may feel as if you are in a free fall when people or things you had counted on let you down. Yet as soon as you remember that I am with you, your perspective changes radically. Instead of bemoaning your circumstances, you can look to me for help. Recall that not only am I with you, I am holding you by your right hand. I guide you with my counsel, and afterward, I will take you into glory. This is exactly the perspective you need, the reassurance of my presence and the glorious hope of heaven. I think that, yes, the feeling of the presence, the presence of the Lord welling in my life, and how that generates this, as the devotional said, glorious hope. And hope is glorious. Without hope, we don't get up in the morning. You know, we don't love without hope. You know, we don't forgive without hope. You know, hope is the underpinning to all of those human actions that make us better people and closer to God. You can find Edward Grinnan's books at your favorite retail. And be sure to check out the newly redesigned Guideposts magazine at guideposts.org. During times of transition and unknown next steps, it's more important than ever to cling to the promises of God and to tune your ear to what Jesus has to say. Jesus Calling for Graduates is an encouraging compilation of 150 devotions from Sarah Young's brand. Grads will find topics such as discerning God's will, self-worth, 
trust, support, and much more. Jesus Calling for Graduates is perfect for both high school and college graduates as they embark on the next chapter. Look for our special custom edition of Jesus Calling for Graduates, available exclusively at faithgateway.com. Many of us want to develop a deeper prayer life. In this new 365-day devotional, Jesus Listens, Sarah Young offers daily prayers based on Scripture that will help you experience how intentional prayer can connect you to God and change your heart. Learn more about Jesus Listens and download a free sample at jesuscalling.com slash jesuslistens. Our next guest is motivational speaker Damon West, who has faced countless obstacles in his young life, including drug addiction and prison time. Although Damon believed he developed a bad belief system at an early age, he used his time in jail to learn about the Bible and to learn from his fellow inmates about how you can let life and circumstances transform you for better or for worse. Ultimately, choosing to let the pressure help turn him into the best version of himself. Hey everybody, my name is Damon West, otherwise known as the Coffee Bean Guy. I'm a motivational speaker, I'm an author, but I'm also a criminal justice professor. I teach a class at the University of Houston downtown called Prisons in America. And I grew up in a, in a great home. I grew up in a town called Port Arthur, Texas, and my dad was a sports writer, my mother was a nurse, I had an older brother. God was at the center of everything too. I mean, it was, uh, you know, I had all the tools necessary in my life to meet my dreams head on. My parents gave me everything. You couldn't escape God in our our home. You couldn't escape Jesus in our home. Like a lot of kids, I was going through different things growing up and I got into substance abuse at a young age. When I was nine, I was molested by a babysitter and my parents did everything they could to help me out. They took me to a counselor. We went and talked to the family priest. We prayed about it. But something beside that little nine-year-old boy went to a really dark place. And by the time I was 10, I found myself going to the fridge, getting beers out, you know, my dad's beer out of the fridge. I liked the way it felt to get drunk. At 10 years old, I, and I was stealing my mom's cigarettes. And by the time I was 12, I was, I was smoking weed. But the worst part about this is I have a bad belief system. And our belief systems tell us how to do things over and over again the wrong way till they become our habits and our behaviors. My bad belief system at 10 and 12 years old said, all you're doing is drinking a little beer, smoking a little pot. You're not hurting anybody. You're not even hurting yourself. But I, I couldn't have been more wrong because that those belief systems, those behaviors took me further away from Christ and, and the home that I grew up in. And I had a lot of character issues developing, a spiritual warfare, if you will, going on inside my young body. But I could throw a football really well. And, and this is Texas. In Texas high school football, well, Texas high school football religion is like a religion down in Texas. And I was the star quarterback in my hometown. I got a, I was a three-year starting quarterback in high school. I got a scholarship to play ball at the University of North Texas. So my bad beliefs and my behaviors were always easily swept under the rug. And I could always deal with them in the fact that, hey, I'm your star quarterback. You know, you know, it, it's going to be okay. Hey, I'm sorry for doing what I did wrong. And I, would, I never had much accountability in my life. But life has a way of giving you these days, Linda, that I call fork in the road days. And a fork in the road is this. Life's going to knock you down. God's going to knock you down so hard one day. And when you get back up and dust yourself off, things are in different places, right? But you've got a choice to make at that fork in the road in life. Are you going to make the right choice and go the right way or the wrong choice and go the wrong direction? And I came up to a very big fork in the road in my life when 
September 21st, 1996. It was a, a beautiful Saturday afternoon at College Station, Texas. And, and I'm 20 years old. I'm the starting quarterback for my Division One college football team. I take the field, and by the third play of that game, I went down with a separated shoulder. And when that happened, when my college career got ended on that Saturday afternoon at College Station, I came up to this fork in the road in life, and, and I had a bad belief system. When we face that adversity, now my my college football career is gone, and instead of you know instead of turning to God to try to navigate that fork in the road, I, I didn't do it. I made a lot of wrong turns, and, and instead of just drinking a little beer, smoke a little pot, well now I'm putting the hardcore drugs, the, the cocaine, the ecstasy, the pills, uh, you name it. I was doing it, and and you know s- somehow by the grace of God, I graduated college in 1999, and after college, I moved off to Washington D.C., and that begins another chapter of my life. I got a job working. Right out of college, I'm working for uh, a guy, a congressman from Houston. And so I get a job working in the United States Congress. I work in the Capitol building every day. And after that job, I go work for a guy running for president of the United States. I'm raising money for him as a political fundraiser all over the country. And when he drops out of the race in 2004, I move back to Dallas, Texas, to train to be a stockbroker for one of the biggest Wall Street banks in the world, UBS, United Bank of Switzerland. And it was at that job as a stockbroker. I came up to another fork in the road in my life. And this one was going to be a bigger fork in the road than the last one. And that's what God does. We've got these tests in life. We get knocked down. I got to get back up. It was 2004. I was asleep at my desk at work at that job at the brokerage firm. This other broker comes up and sees me sleeping. He freaks out. He wakes me up. And he's like, Damon, man. He said, wake up. He said, you can't sleep on this job. He said, they'll fire you for that. The markets are open. You're messing with people's money. He told me, he said, come on down to the parking garage. I got something that's going to pick you up. So I go down to the parking garage with him. And in 2004, I'm into into cocaine. I'm a drug addict into cocaine. So I think that's what we're going to his car to do. And when we got to his car, he handed me this glass pipe with these little crystal rocks in it. And And I freak out on him at first. I'm like, man, what is that? He said, man, Damon, just relax. He said, it's crystal meth. He said, you'll love this stuff. And, and, and truer words had never been spoken because I fell in love with that drug that day. And, and it took me no time when it, to give everything away for that drug because I'm an addict. I gave away my job, my home, my car, my savings account, my family, my tethering to God. I went from working on Wall Street to living on the streets of Dallas, homeless, living in abandoned buildings, sleeping in people's parked cars, living in dope houses with other dope fiends because that's what I am as a dope fiend. And I start committing property crimes to fund my addiction. The first it's uh, breaking into people's cars. Then it's breaking into people's storage units. Then eventually it escalated to home burglaries. And, you know, in these home burglaries, I, I, I'd make it a point to always talk about my victims because they're the most important component to the story here because my victims had to sacrifice the most for me to tell the story today. I stole way more than property from these people. I stole their sense of security. And I do not know if they ever get that back. But after three years of committing property crime against the people of Dallas, on July 30th, 2008, I was sitting on this little rundown couch in this little rundown apartment in Dallas, and and I had my meth dealer named Tex sitting next to me, and I'm sitting there smoking meth with Tex. And I was telling Tex that day, Tex, I think the cops are about to come get me. And just as I passed the pipe back to Tex, I heard a window shatter off to my right. It starts to register what's going on in my mind. I mean, I've I've seen this movie before. I know this is, so I try to get off the couch and I get out of that living room, 
too late. Boom! The flashing grenade goes off my face. Bright white light, loud noise, blows me back on the couch. And when I came to, when I can see and hear again, this cop in full SWAT riot gear, man. He's got his boot on my chest, and the barrel of an assault rifle is digging in my eye socket, and he's screaming at the top of his lungs, don't move, don't move. And I looked at this cop and I blinked, and I was like, man, don't worry. Don't worry. And so cops start flooding my apartment, and one of them screamed out, we got him. We got the uptown burglar. And, and when I was laying on the floor of that apartment, I remember thinking to myself, about a month before this happened, I ran out of dope. I was down and depressed. And anybody that's ever been addicted to a drug knows that when you're coming down, it's, it's there's a miserable feeling. And I remember saying to God, hey, God, if you're out there, if you're even there, because at this point, I'm so lost in my life. The spiritual warfare going on inside of me is intense. And I remember saying, God, if you're even there, man, just know I am done. I'm so tired. I'm ready to be done. So they take me down to Dallas County Jail. They process me and they fingerprints, mugshots, and they throw me in a holding cell. And, and after 24 hours of sitting in that holding cell, they come to get me. These guards are mad at me. People are mad at me. I, I've been terrorizing Dallas for three years. And they finally, they have me in chains. And they, they take me and they put me in one of the worst pods they could find with the most aggravated, most dangerous offenders. And, and within 24 hours of that, I'm in my first fight in county jail over a breakfast tray. And I'm scared to death. And all I want to do is talk to my mother and my father. I'm reverting back to being like a child. So I get on the phone in the day room and I call home to Port Arthur, Texas, you know, six hours away from Dallas. And my father answers the phone and he is screaming and crying. He sounds like a wounded animal. Damon, how did we go so wrong? How did we mess up so bad? What could we have done different? So he's crying and now I'm crying because I broke my dad. My mom, my mom snatches the phone out of my dad's hand. She said, you need to understand that we love you unconditionally. She said, there's nothing you could do to make us not love you, Damon. She said, that was the deal we made with Jesus when he loaned you to us. She said, do you understand what I'm saying, Damon? You know, and through the tears, I said, yeah, mom, I got it. I understand. She said, I said, you love me unconditionally. I understand you, mom. I love you too. She said, that's good, baby. She said, I'm glad you understand that because we just gave you back to Jesus. She said, there's nothing we can do for you anymore, Damon. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, you are now a captive audience to God, and you better start listening. She said, Damon, Damon, look down in that jail cell right now. She said, baby, there's only one set of footprints, and they're not yours. She said, get on Jesus' back. I don't want to lose my son. So that night, I listened to my mom. I get on my knees, and I start praying that night. And I say the same prayer repeatedly for the next 10 months while I wait to go to trial. But this isn't some kind of Paul on the road to Damascus moment. Like, this, isn't, this isn't some kind of jailhouse conversion story. That happens later on down the line. Let me tell you about my prayer. This is what a living in addiction. Like, this is how crazy addiction is. I would get on my knees every night in Dallas County Jail religiously. And I'd say the same prayer. Dear God, please, boy, get me out of this one. And if you do, bargaining with Jesus, right? Anybody ever bargain and win that one? Right. So if you do, man, I'll be a normal guy again, man. I'll go get a job and I'll just smoke meth on the weekends. I got this. Obviously that prayer never got answered because when I went to trial 10 months later, that jury of my peers listened to six days of overwhelming evidence of my guilt. Six days. And there's a long criminal trial in the state of Texas for crimes where no one was physically hurt. No one was ever home. But at the end of six days, that jury of my peers went to deliberate for 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Damon Joseph West, you are hereby sentenced to 65 years in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. 
65 years in prison in Texas is a life sentence in the state of Texas. A jury gave me life that day. They threw me away. I was unredeemable to that jury. And I understand why they did it. Because I was a bad guy doing bad things. So I went back to my pod, Dallas County Jail, with this amazing promise that I made to my mom that I don't even know how I'm going to keep because I've never been to prison before. But I'm, and I'm asking all the guys that had been to prison in county jail, well, how am I going to survive? What am I going to do? But there was this one guy, this older black man named Mr. Jackson. And, and I say older, he was, Mr. Jackson was probably in the 60s. He was the most positive guy I've ever met. But this guy had a smile on his face everywhere he went. Every morning he'd come up and talk to me. So one morning he comes up, he's got a cup of coffee in his hands, a smile on his face. And he said, you know, Wes, I've been watching how you're dealing with these knuckleheads. He said, you want to keep that promise you made to your mom and your dad, to Jesus, to yourself? He said, let me tell you what you need to do. He said, I want you to imagine prison as a pot of boiling water. And he said, anything we put in that pot of boiling water is going to be changed by the heat and the pressure inside that pot. He said, I'm going to put three things in that pot of boiling water and watch how they change. A carrot, an egg, and a coffee bean. So he said, first things first, he said, if I put a carrot in that pot of boiling water that we call prison, he said, now what happens to the carrot? And I was like, Mr. Jackson, the carrot turns soft. He said, that's right. He said, the carrot goes into the water really hard, but that water, that prison, changes that hard carrot, turns it soft and mushy and weak. He said, you don't want to be the carrot in prison. He said, what about the egg, West? And a, a little bit more confidently, I'm like, you know, Mr. Jackson, the egg turns hard, like a hard-boiled egg. He said, that's right, West. He said, the egg is a shell that protects it physically, but inside that shell, that soft liquid core, his heart becomes hardened. He said, if your heart becomes hardened, well, now you're incapable of giving and receiving love. He said, if you're incapable of giving or receiving love, you've become institutionalized. And that's when he asked me, he said, what about the coffee bean? And I had no answer for him because I didn't know what happened to a coffee bean in a pot of warm water. And that's when he shared with me. He said, if I put a coffee bean into that same pot of boiling water we call prison. He said, now, now you got to change the name of the water to coffee. Because he said, the coffee bean, West, the smallest of these three things, he said, small like you, had the power to change the entire atmosphere inside that pot because the power was inside the coffee bean, just like the power is inside you. And the last thing Mr. Jackson told me in August of 2009 when I was getting ready to get on that prison bus and be shipped off to go serve my sentence, he said, West, go out there and go be a coffee bean. And with the powers inside me, truly inside me, then this means no matter what environment I'm dropped off in, no matter what adversity I face in life, I won't survive, I'll thrive. And I, you know, and to this day, looking back on the coffee bean message when it was given to me, that's the power of Christ inside each and every one of us. I went to prison, and, and prison was the hardest thing I've ever been through in my life. It was the most dangerous thing, most terrorizing thing. Some days I don't even know how I survived that, but I do know the way I did. Is I got on God's back, and I let God carry me all around that prison. And it was violent. It was dangerous. I lost a lot of fights. Uh, I probably got three dozen fights while I was there and lost 75% of them, but I survived each day. As the, the problems around me grew more, my relationship with Christ grew stronger, and that's the only thing that stopped me from becoming that egg or becoming that carrot inside that maximum security prison. And you know, the transformation was so, was so overwhelming. 
November 16, 2015 was the day I walk out of prison. I'm on parole for the rest of my life. My family's waiting for me in the parking lot. My mom is, you know, it's just a very emotional moment for us. And, you know, one of the things that got me through that time in prison, it helped me become that coffee bean was this beautiful prayer that we pray in, in recovery called the serenity prayer. I don't know if you've ever heard the serenity prayer, but it's worth repeating because I say it so many times a day. One more time is not going to hurt. And it's God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I have to remind myself because I'm a human being. I mean, and, and that's how I was made. I was made to, to make mistakes and stumble and fall and get up. But that's one of the things I learned about being a coffee bean is that your past doesn't define you. I mean, Jesus died on the cross for our past. And so you have to come to terms with that and that your past doesn't define you. And if my past defined me, well, y'all wouldn't be listening to some ex-con from Texas talking about the things he learned inside of a maximum security prison. But it's because our past is our lesson, you know? And our present today is a gift. And the gift when I talk about, it, it's not a gift for you. It's a gift for what you can do for other people. I just take what Jesus gives me is, you know, because he knows what I need and I'm looking for what he needs me to do for him. And that's, that's really what being a coffee bean is all about. Being there, being present and taking care of what Jesus puts in front of us every day. That's how to become a coffee bean. To learn more about Damon West, please visit DamonWest.org. If you'd like to hear more stories about choosing to rise above our circumstances, check out our interview with Karen Amon as well as our Peace and Uncertain Times video with Jenny Finch, available on our YouTube channel. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we hear from songwriter Joni Harms, who shares the legacy of her family farm, the influence of music on her life, and how faith helps keep her grounded. With all the different things that you're faced with out there in this world today especially, Having faith and being able to stay grounded and just talk to the Lord every day about the different things that you have to deal with is so important and I know has been a huge part of keeping me away from the negative side of things as much as possible, you know? Want to hear more inspirational stories of people who have been changed by a closer walk with God? Then subscribe today to the Jesus Calling Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please be sure to leave a review, which helps us reach and inspire others with these stories. Plus, if you like seeing our guests as well as hearing them, you can find video interviews available on our YouTube channel at youtube.com Jesus Calling Book on Facebook and on the Jesus Calling Instagram page.